0: friends and family. I am sorry I am late publishing this particular episode. I usually do by Saturday. Um, This weekend, or no, this week, uh, my family housed a member of our family in hospice, and this Saturday we lost everybody's best friend. The lion-hearted, incomparable William Hill Jr., who also happened to be my uncle, i want to share his story with everyone because it is a story that should be heard and until then i want to extend his best wishes he knew about all the listeners all over the world and i'm sure he's sending you love and peace as do i Hello! We are in Season 1, Episode 5, and I call this something out of nothing, or perhaps treasure out of nothing, because these people are incredible. Tangible Voices is a space where true voices from the past and present can be uncovered, shift our perspective, and resonate with our lives today. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and made possible by us at One True Promotion. I am Carrie, an educator and performer. Once again, during this season, we are reading through I Dream a World, which is a collection of interviews and photographs of 75 game-changing African-American women, most of whom we didn't learn about in school. This book was published in 1989 with a foreword by Maya Angelou, Photographs and interviews by Brian Lanker, and editing by Barbara Summers. What I happen to be reading are small segments of what could have been at times entire day interviews. So keep that in mind as the topics flow. Today, three women who persisted and broke barriers take the forefront today. A woman who took in the children of Black families who had to work, and ended up raising 40 and holding hundreds more. Mother Hale. A girl who couldn't walk in childhood, but within seven years was running in the Olympic Games. Wilma Rudolph. A girl who saved up pennies to buy a guitar and went on to write some of America's most popular folk music. Elizabeth Cotton. All of these women started with next to nothing in their respective lines of work and through their grit and sense of mission, succeeded. Possibly influencing countless Americans along the way. This is Something Out of Nothing. Clara McBride Hale, born April 1st, 1905 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Mother Hale opened the doors of Hale House in a Harlem brownstone in 1973 to provide a life-saving environment for the babies of young drug-addicted mothers. Hundreds of children have returned to health and to their rehabilitated parents after living and being loved in this unique program, which is administered by her daughter, Dr. Lorraine Hale. Mother Hale has been cited as an American hero She passed away on December 18, 1992 in New York, New York. For those like me who live in the greater New York and Philadelphia regions, I just started to wonder how our area could have survived and thrived to the level it has without her. My mother always had a house full of children. She had four children and all the neighbor's children came to our house. You couldn't tell that my mother was not white. See, my grandmother, they said she was a beautiful woman. She was a slave and the master gave her my mother. They had some mulattoes that they called free issues. That's what happened with my mother. She had all the features of the master and she was as fair. But she was a fair woman, I mean not only in color. She knew what was happening and she taught this. She kept saying, I want you to hold your head up and be proud of yourself. We were brought over and we were enslaved all this time, but it's over now. You're supposed to be free, but you aren't free. Remember that. My husband and I had dreams of what we were going to do with our children. We dreamed that they'd grow up and be what they want to be and have a good life. My first child was Nathan. Nathan Hale. Oh, I was really an American. I wanted them to know. My husband died when my daughter Lorraine was five and Nathan was six. There was no way under the sun that they would give you any other job except domestic jobs. And that meant being away all day from these poor little children who had nobody. So I decided to take in other people's children. They were coming for five days and going home Saturday and Sunday. But they got so they didn't want to go home. They wanted to stay with me altogether. So the parents would give me an extra dollar and that meant I kept them all the time. My daughter said she was at least 11 years old before she realized that these were not her sisters and brothers. So, I raised 40. Every one of them went to college. Every one of them graduated. And they have lovely jobs. They're some of the nicest people. Anything they wanted to do, I backed them up. I have singers, dancers, preachers, and things like that. They're school teachers, lawyers, doctors, anything else. No big name or anything, but they're happy. In 1969, I decided I wouldn't take care of no more children. Then my daughter sent me a girl with an addict baby. Inside of two months, I had 22 babies living in a five-room apartment. My decision to stop didn't mean anything. It seems as though God wanted them. He kept sending them, and he kept opening a way for me to make it. It's been over 600 addicted babies. We hold them and rock them. They love you to tell them how great they are, how good they are. Somehow, even at a young age, they understand that. They're happy and they turn out well. Being black does not stop you. You can sit out in the world and say, Well, white people kept me back and I can't do this. Not so. You can have anything you want if you make up your mind and you want it. You don't have to crack nobody across the head. Don't have to steal or anything. Don't have to be smart like the men up high stealing all the money. We're good people and we try. I'm not going to retire again. Until I die, I'm going to keep doing. My people need me. They need somebody that's not taken from them and is giving them something. We're going to open a place for children with AIDS because there's no cure and these children will die. People shun them and it's not their fault. I want them to live a good life while they can and know someone loves them. It's back to being very bad for black people now, but I'll live through that too. If I don't, I have a daughter that will carry on. I have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They have the same feeling. When I'm gone, somebody else will take up and do it. This is how we've lived all these years. I'm hoping that one day there will be no hail House, that we won't need anybody to look after these children, that the drugs will be gone. I'm not an American hero. I'm a person that loves children. Wilma Rudolph, born June 23, 1940 in Clarksville, Tennessee. Wilma Rudolph was the first American woman to win three gold medals in track and field at a single Olympiad. In 1960, in Rome, she won the 100-meter and 200-meter sprints and then ran the anchor leg for the United States 4x100 relay team. Her autobiography, Wilma, was published in 1977 and adapted for a television movie. She had been track director and special consultant on minority affairs at DePaul University, Greencastle, Indiana, and also was president of the Rudolph, Wilma Rudolph Foundation, excuse me, based in Indianapolis. She passed away on November 12, 1994, due to complications from brain cancer. I was safe by the time I was 12, but it was hard for me to remember all of those terrible days before then. I had a series of childhood illnesses. It started off as scarlet fever, and from there, it was polio. My father was the one who sort of babied me and was sympathetic. He was a determined person. He had to be. There were 22 children. I am the 20th. My mother was the one who made me work, made me believe that one day it would be possible for me to walk without braces. They would take me to a doctor at Beharie Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. And when we got back home, they would show everybody the massages and exercises that I did when I was in the hospital. It got to the point where everybody could basically share in the exercises, so we used to make a game out of it when my parents were gone, I would take the braces off and walk around. I think by doing that, I probably walked a lot sooner than I would have. I didn't like any of my friends. Your peers are always the worst. They tease you or if you were playing a game, nobody wants to hold your hands because you have a brace on. I used to hate that. I think my way of getting back at them was through a sport that was also a form of motivation and determination. Around nine, the braces came off, and now I can't remember which leg I wore my braces on. The next thing I knew, I was normal. I was doing everything that everyone else could do. Once I discovered I could run, I spent all of my extra time running. I was six feet, 89 pounds, and I wanted to be the greatest basketball player that ever came through my tiny high school. My coach said the way I buzzed around so irritated him that he called me Mosquito. As I grew older, they dropped the first portion and everybody I know just calls me Skeeter. When the basketball season is over, kids are always looking for another sport. You don't want to go home in the afternoon to do chores. So there was my motivation for track and field. In college, our coach always protected us. Places he knew we could not use the bathroom, he didn't take us. It made it easier to accomplish something, to be proud and not have to mix any world affairs that we couldn't solve with the accomplishment. Coming from this small southern town, I was always determined that I was never going to stay there and not see the rest of the world. When I went to my first Olympics in Melbourne, Australia, I was a green 16 year old, innocent and naive. After winning the bronze medal in the four x 100 relay, the most difficult thing was going back and getting very angry inside about how people perceived black people where I lived. That's when you rebel. I worked very hard for the next four years. In Rome, I was self-motivated and motivated by my family. It took sheer determination to be able to run 100 yards and remember all of the mechanics that go along with it. It takes steady nerves and being a fighter to stay out there. From the moment you walk into the stadium, you block out everything and everybody until you get the command to start. I could only hear the cheers after the race was over. After 1960, of course, everything changed. When I got back from the Olympics, my hometown, which had never been integrated, decided to have a parade for me. I told them that I could not come to a parade that would be segregated. So, I sort of broke that barrier in my hometown. I probably did everything that I wasn't supposed to do that it was to pave the way for other Blacks in the town. Sometimes it takes years to really grasp what has happened into your life. What do you do after you are world famous in 19 or 20, and you have sat with prime ministers, kings and queens, the Pope? What do you do after that? Do you go back home and take a job? What do you do to keep your sanity? You come back to the real world. I wanted to make more money than I knew other women made. But there was no place for a black woman to make money in the world of advertising and marketing. We know why. If you listen to everybody else, you will feel sorry for yourself. Because they will say, if you had been white, you would have been a millionaire. What kind of answer do you expect me to give you? I am not white. I am a black woman. And that is the bottom line. When I was going through my transition of being famous, I used to ask God, why was I here? What was my purpose? Surely it wasn't just to win three gold medals. There has to be more to this life than that. I would be very disappointed if I were only remembered as a runner, because I feel that my contribution to the youth of America has far exceeded the woman who was the Olympic champion. The challenge is still there. Elizabeth Cotton, born January 1892 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Libba Cotton, singer, Storyteller, composer, guitarist, and banjo player, worked as a housekeeper for decades before beginning a performing career at age 67. She is the author of many songs, including the folk classic Freight Train, which has also been recorded by groups as diverse as Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Grateful Dead. Libba won a Grammy Award in 1984 for her music on Elizabeth Cotton Live, voted the best ethnic or traditional folk recording that year. She passed away on June 29, 1987, in Syracuse, New York. Until her death at age 95, she continued to perform around the country in the three-fingered style of picking that now bears her name, Cotton Picking. I named myself. The first day I went to school, the teacher was call on roll, and everybody was called a name. My parents didn't name me. They all called me sis, you know. So when the teacher got to me, she said, little sis, don't you have a name? What is it? And I just said, Elizabeth. I don't know where I got that name. So she put it down and I started being called Elizabeth. When I was a little girl, my mother and father used to bury their meat rub it up and bury it in the ground and put dirt back over it like we didn't have no meat. The white people would come and take it away from us. My mother said she could hear the horse's feet coming over the bridge, and she said, Neville, you better go to hide in it. She'd tell him, hide the meat. I hear the horse's feet. He'd leave a bone where he'd uncut off meat off and leave that in the meat house like the meat gone, and then he'd dig a hole and put all the meat in it. They'd come around and look for it. If he didn't hide some of it, he wouldn't have none when they left. When I was a child, I went to the door and asked people if they needed somebody to work. I said, I can wash your dishes, I can set your table, and I can sweep your kitchen and everything. And I went to work for this lady for 75 cents a month. I saved my money and gave it to my mother, and when she got enough, we bought a guitar. I carried it home and started plucking on it. My mother said, now if you don't put that thing down, I'm gonna get you. I gotta get to sleep and to work in the morning. And I'd say, Mama, I'm gonna stop. This is the last song. And I'd just keep everybody awake all night. Lord, have mercy. I was a nuisance, I know I was. But my mama would always say, she's my baby. Now let her do what she wants to do. She ain't doing nothing wrong. I didn't have no lessons. Not nobody teach me. I didn't know nothing. I worked hard. I started playing one string at a time. Get a song and get a string and just play up and down. And then I tried to play more strings into the song. All my brothers could play. Sometimes I'd ask my brothers to show me how to make a chord on the guitar. They said, I can't show you how to do it. You got your fingers on the wrong strings. You're playing the left hand and you never stop picking. Change the strings and put your fingers on like I tell you. I couldn't do it. I was playing my guitar left-handed and I didn't change the strings. I picked the tune, you know, just on the strings. That's the way I did all my songs. I reckon that's why they named it Cotton Pickin'. I went to work for the Seeger family, which included folk singers Mike and Pete Seeger. I did everything, cooked, washed dishes, served. One day, Michael says to me, Elizabeth, why don't we give a little concert? They knew I could play because I was playing the guitar every minute I got. We had that concert and I stopped work then and went on out to play. Say I'm a musician if you want to but I didn't know one chord from another. I don't know it yet, I mean in letters. Just let me pick and sing. I just love to sing. I love to get up before people and let them hear what I can do. It does me good to play my guitar. I love to entertain people, sing to them, talk, tell little things about me, what all I used to do. That was my pleasure to do that. I was just glad to get the Grammy. I didn't know what the thing was. It's the honor what I loved. Hey y'all. This final biography was going to be in what would have been this week's episode, and I am. Um adding it as a bonus to this particular episode. So enjoy the little extra. This is the woman who was on the cover of I Dream a World, Septima Clark. When I read this particular biography, y'all the first thing I thought was that I wanted to title it Everything. At fifty eight years old, This educator was fired from the Board of Education for being a member of the NAACP. In the years that followed, she became a civil rights champion, fighting for equity in education, mentoring Rosa Parks, working closely with Dr. King, and somehow being forgotten by the history books a mere 30 or so years later, by the time I was attending grade school. In this interview, Septima speaks on being a direct descendant of slaves racism in the education system, civil rights, voting rights, training teachers, sexism, problem-solving, and she speaks to the children of the future. Like I said, everything. Setima McClark, born May 3rd, 1898, in Charleston, South Carolina. Septima Clark, one of the most effective and yet unsung heroes of the civil rights movement, believed that literacy was the key to empowerment. After teaching for many years in the public schools of South Carolina, she went on, on to work tirelessly with the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Georgia. With her talent for developing leadership, she established innovative citizenship schools throughout the South. She recruited hundreds of teachers who taught thousands of others to read, to register to vote, and to stand up for their rights. Portions of this particular story originally appeared in Ready From Within, Ms. Clark's autobiography published in 1986. Septima is the Latin word for seventh, and in Haiti it means sufficient. My parents named me Septima, and I wondered why. Because I was not the seventh child and neither was I sufficient because six came after me. But I got that name from an aunt down in Haiti whose name was Septima Peace. Sufficient peace. I was supposed to be sufficient peace, but I certainly wasn't sufficient, and I don't know about the peace because I did so many things that wasn't peaceful. My father came out of slavery nonviolent. He was a gentle, tolerant man. My mother was something else. She boasted that she was never a slave, but I have a feeling that somewhere down the line, somebody paid her way out. My mother was born in Charleston, but reared in Haiti. The English school teachers in Haiti did a very good job with my mother because they taught her how to read and write. That made her the proud soul she was all her life. In 1956, after being fired by the Board of Education for being a member of the NAACP, I had to go away for 20 years from Charleston. I couldn't get a job here, nowhere in South Carolina. Not only that, but the black teachers here gave me a testimonial. And do you know that at this party, my sorors would not stand beside me and have their picture made with me? If they had, they would have lost their jobs. I traveled by bus all over the South, visiting teachers and recruiting new ones. I always took the fifth seat from the front to test the buses. They asked me to move, but I didn't. I reminded them that we had a law now that said we could sit anywhere in the bus. We went into various communities and found people. I sat down and wrote out a flyer saying that the teachers we need in a citizenship school should be people who are respected by the members of the community, who can read well aloud, and who can write their names in cursive writing. These are the ones we looked for. We were trying to make teachers out of people who could barely read and write, but they could teach. If they could read at all, we could teach them that C O N S T I T. U-T-I-O-N spells Constitution. When they saw the black people coming in to register to vote at the bank, the registrar would hide in a vault and pretend that registration was closed. We had a lady there who was very fair. We sent her in and when the man came out to register her, the other black people surged in. They thought they had a white woman, but she was one of us. They considered me a communist because I was following Martin Luther King, but anyone who was against segregation was considered a communist. I felt that Dr. King had a dream that all people should be free. When he said freedom, he was thinking that they should be able to do the things that they wanted to do in America. I think we're nearer. I want people to say, This is my dream, and I want it carried forth. I want that dream enforced. In those days, I didn't criticize Dr. King other than asking him not to lead all the marches. Like other black ministers, Dr. King didn't think too much of the way women could contribute. I see this as one of the weaknesses of the civil rights movement, the way the men looked at the women. My husband had strong feelings against women, and he did not think that women had the right to do anything worthwhile. As we grew up together, he never, NEVER believed that there were women who could do things. He always felt that a woman should stay in her place, in the house. I couldn't see that women should just be in the house making children, keeping house, or buying groceries, so we could not agree. I think that the work the women did during the time of civil rights is what really carried the movement along. The women carried forth the ideas. I think the civil rights movement would never have taken off if some women hadn't started to speak up. Women need to grab men by the collar and do more. That's the way I feel. We need women who will get these men by the collar and work with them we still have a hard time getting them to see what it means to vote. I have great belief in the fact that whenever there is chaos, it creates wonderful thinking. I consider chaos a gift. I'd tell the children of the future that they have to stand up for their rights. They have an idea that they can, but I feel that they are shadows underneath a great shelter and that they need to come forth and stand up for some of the things that are right. Just a little announcement. I have a few projects I'm working on in July and August, so unfortunately, this will be my last episode for a few weeks. I'll see you very soon, prayerfully by the fall. I have many ideas and much more to share in the coming months. I pray you stay curious, learning, and continually inspired. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for sending your love and support. Thank you for the reviews and ratings. Um, this has been an incredible month and a half for me. Um, be sure to visit tangible voices podcast on Instagram for more content and to be in the know about what's coming up. Thank you so much for listening. Remember your voice is a power all its own. Bye.